Well, take your Bible and let's find our way to Matthew. Matthew chapter 17. We are moving forward, coming off of the powerful study in my own heart, at least powerful study of Matthew chapter 16. I told my good friend Jared this week, who is a PhD in New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School up in Chicago. He said, what are you, what are you doing in Matthew right now? He calls me, we talk every couple of months and every couple of months he'll say, so you're still in Matthew. Yeah, I'm still in Matthew. And what's going on in Matthew? And I told him Matthew 16 absolutely caught me flat footed. Um, there are those portions of Matthew, having read and reread Matthew, that I kind of almost don't expect the Spirit to use in the same way that other portions are used in our lives. And uh, that is such an unbiblical way to view the Bible. So I was caught by surprise at the value system of Jesus and the impact of studying those those priority points in the life of Christ in chapter 16. I was, I was caught... W- totally uh, unguarded as I studied and spent time in preparation. And I trust that you received some of that and the Lord used it in the same way in your life to shape and mold us so that we can look at how we live and say, does my life make visible the gospel that I profess to believe? I was challenged last night. I was listening to another brother preach and he was reminding me through video and those who were listening to him directly, reminding us that there was a time in our lives where we played a little game called follow the leader. And if your friend was the leader, whatever your friend did, you had to do and you'd run behind them and play follow the leader. And if they made a fool of themselves in some physical way, then the game was you had to make a fool of yourself in that same physical way. And he brought that over then to our profession to follow Christ. And our definition of following Christ often being that we study what he said. Rather than imitate what he did and live with his values on display in our lives. And I was struck again by how powerful chapter 16 is and uh, the way it's informed my life even this past week. In my marriage and in my parenting, all of the day-to-day activities come back to these these powerful verses in the values of our Savior and our Lord, who is our Christ. Okay, that brings us to chapter 17. And in the end of verse, or the end of chapter 16, verse 28, we found Jesus saying to the multitude, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. That really is the front end of what we're going to read this morning and study together this morning, beginning in verse number one of chapter 17. So taking verse 28 and bringing it now down and into verse number one. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James and John, his brother, that is James's brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun. And his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we're here. If you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. 
He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. These are the words of God for us this morning and for our consideration together. Father, use your word now in our lives. May we submit to it, not standing in judgment over it, but allowing it to stand in judgment over us. Not as those condemned by it, but those who come to you through Christ. And lay ourselves open before you as willing sacrifices, as slaves of Christ. Do your work now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. May of 2002, a girl named Renee Bailey for about a week was in a car with a guy named Adam Bailey. We were driving from Virginia Beach to Washington, D.C. on our honeymoon. What we found out there would become a pattern of our marriage. I got confused on the directions. Uh, We headed into D.C. And on the beltway, there was a sign that said carpool, two or more people. I thought for sure that was a good idea. Uh, There was two of us in the car and traffic was slow. So let's get over there and it'll be fast. This is simple reasoning. Very simple. The problem is there's only one entrance to get into the carpool lane. And when you're in Virginia and you get into the carpool lane, you can't get out of the carpool lane. You're in there and you're stuck in there. And there's just walls all along. And they assume that the only people who get in there are heading into D.C. for work. That's what it's for. It's a carpool lane for work. So Renee and I got into this. We watched our exit go by outside of the walls as we were cruising along. And uh, I remember uh, thinking I, I better not lose it here and be very frustrated with the situation. Renee probably has better memory of how I was handling that from her vantage point in the passenger seat. Lo and behold, we entered into D.C. Now I have no idea how we're going to get out of D.C. I'm terrified of getting lost permanently in here. This is embarrassing. My leadership is greatly in question. We come around a big turn, and if you've ever been on this path, if you've ever driven in this carpool lane, You know what's coming. We came around a turn, and as we came around the bank, we looked to our right, and right in front of our faces, from here to the back wall, was the Pentagon with a massive, massive hole. This was May of 2002. It had only been months since that jetliner had flown into the Pentagon. There were ragged pieces of desks hanging out of the floors of the Pentagon. We looked at that, and it was as if there's no words to say. You just say something very inadequate, like, wow, or whoa, 
You just don't have anything. And you look at it and you just think, I have nothing in my, my brain. I have no category for what I'm looking at. There's, there's nothing in me that can process the, the, the magnitude of the damage that was done. And every time I have tried to tell people about that experience, I feel that same sensation of loss for words to explain it. It was unbelievable to look at. It was incomprehensible. The damage was enormous. And it grieved your heart. You were aware of how many people died. The shock of it was one of those moments where you, you had to be there, right? We know those moments. In February of 2004, my dad and I, for his 50th birthday trip, we went to the Big East Conference Championship for basketball, which is a fabric of our being. It's in our DNA. So we went to Mecca for basketball, which is Madison Square Garden, and we spent uh, a weekend in mid-Manhattan. Part of that time, we decided we should spend heading down to Ground Zero, how could we be this close and be in Manhattan and not go there and, and, and sense and feel the history of what took place in tragedy in our country? So we got on the subway and the same experience took place. No expectation, no ability to know what it would look like. And walking out and walking up to a fence and seeing floors down into a hole and football fields long of just vast emptiness. People there crying and touching the fence. People with signs around them that had the pictures of the ones who had died who were their family members. It's, it's an overwhelming experience. And there's no, really, there's no way to say what, what we felt. We just didn't talk. We just stood there by each other. It was inexpressible. It was one of those dramatic moments in our lives where we think, I don't think I'll ever look at life the same way because I've been here, now. And you, you have these, I'm sure. Many, if not all of you, have some experience like that, either on the traumatic side or the, the excited, blessing side, where you think, from here on, we'll never be the same. We'll never look at life the same way. This morning, it's our privilege to be brought along by Matthew, who was not here who was left at the bottom of the mountain, to be brought along on such an event with three disciples of Jesus. This event has far greater implications than any human experience with temporal results in our lives, with an emotional response in our lives. I cannot hear a song about 9-11. I can't go through... Uh, uh, a memorial of 9-11 on the anniversary of 9-11 and not think of the Pentagon and Ground Zero where the Twin Towers fell. I can't. But this, this event, this experience has far greater implications because those who went through this experience and we who get to come along on this experience, this one has eternal significance. This one radically alters eternal perspective. This changes everything. What we've read in these verses of chapter 17 were the life-changing and life-altering and eternal life-altering moment for these three disciples. While traumatic experiences in our lives temporally redirect our perspective, this event 
permanently redirected the perspective of those who were involved. And I trust that we'll glean from that and be able to sense it. As always, when we study our Bible, we are not trying to get Matthew 17 here to our time to make it relevant to us. The best way we can study our Bible is to get us to Matthew 17 because we'll feel the weight of what is happening and receive the Spirit-intended meaning and implication of this section. So we're going to go back and we're going to go in with Matthew as he lets us ride along in this inexpressible blessing for Peter, James, and John. Here's the big idea. Here's the one theme that I believe comes out of chapter 17, verses 1 through 13, that should impress us when we're finished with our study this morning. The glory of Jesus. The glory of Jesus establishes the supremacy of Jesus. So the glory of Jesus, what we'll see at the transfiguration, establishes the supremacy of Jesus, his supreme place, and informs the confident expectation of his followers. So two things come from the glory of Jesus at the transfiguration. One, his supremacy is established. And two, the expectation of his people is confirmed and informed and strengthened. So let me say that again. The glory of Jesus establishes the supremacy of Jesus and informs the confident expectation of his followers. There is so much happening in these verses. It's been a daunting week trying to trying to decide how to study this together. Let me begin with verse 28, just so that we have some perspective heading into chapter 17. Let me just lay some groundwork stuff, and then we'll dive into our study and into our outline for study this morning. Jesus says in verse 28, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now, because we're Bible students, if you're here and you've read through your Bible before, you know that verse 1 of chapter 17 It's going to happen, right? So there's three people six days later who are going to get to experience the glory and the majesty, the power of the kingdom as a first taste as Jesus is transfigured. But what's difficult for us is to comprehend what the people who heard him say, verse 28, heard. Because Jesus had been declaring and proving and arguing that he was the Messiah, that he was the promised one from God who fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies and who now culminated God's saving work. Correct? So the Jewish people standing before him, the multitude of people, the disciples included, now hear Jesus say, I am am the Lord of all. You either are with me or against me. You save your life, you lose it. You, You gain your World, you forfeit your soul. And then he has this shocking statement from the Messiah. Oh, and by the way, some of you will get to see the glory of my kingdom before you die. Now, why is that a shock? Because each and every person who is there, who had any inclination that he was the Messiah, save maybe the twelve who had some confusion about the timeline and the, the mission of Jesus because of what he had been saying to them. But anyone in the multitude would have fully assumed that if the Messiah is standing in front of me, unless I'm extremely elderly, I'm going to be there when he does his powerful work, right? I'm going to be a part of it. He's here. 
So Jesus tells vast majorities of the crowd, you're going to die before you ever see this come. So you flip that statement around and you get the shock value of what Jesus is saying. Most of you are going to die before you see the power and the glory of the kingdom come. That is a radical statement from the Messiah. Because the Jewish understanding had no category for that. The Messiah comes, he overthrows Rome, he establishes the nation of Israel as a power, and peace reigns for eternity. This was the simplistic understanding of the end times teaching in the Old Testament. And so Jesus here confronts it. And we know he confronts it. He's done this just in chapter 16. A few verses before, he was from that point on telling the disciples, i got to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer, die, and be raised again. Right? So he's, he's already engaged with the disciples in something other than what you expect is going to happen. Verse 28, he scatters it to the multitude. So with the shock and all of that resting on the multitude, a week goes by. And we find ourselves in verse number one of chapter 17. This is the context in which we find Jesus displaying his glory and the glory of the kingdom to the disciples. So we're just going to divide this up very simply. Okay, we're going to see the transfiguration in verses one through three. That's a big word. I think it's on purpose to be confusing. The transfiguration. um, If you put transformation, that'll work. You can spell that easier. Transfiguration, verses 1 through 3. The conversation, verses 4 through 8. And the clarification, verses 9 through 13. So, transfiguration, then there's a conversation, and then we're going to see the clarification at the conclusion of the paragraph. And I trust we'll make our way through this this morning. Before we get far into this first topic, the transfiguration, this first explanation from Matthew, Let's pause at these first four words. Matthew records an after six days. In Luke chapter 9, with the same record of this event, we find Luke saying about eight days later. Now, this is the kind of thing you need to know about. You you can't be in the dark that Luke says about eight days, and Matthew says after six days, and Mark says after six days. Now, can you trust your Bible or not? Of course, the answer here is yes. Matthew and Mark record the specific timeline, which is very rare for them to record a specific timeline prior to the Passion Week. They give us a specific a specific timeline for these events. Six days after verse 28, verse number one is taking place. Luke, on the other hand, writing to a Gentile audience, uses a a a a a speech pattern that would be understood as a week about eight days encapsulates an entire week. So sometime within this week, this is what happened. So Mark and Matthew help us know that it was six days into that about a week that this took place. No contradiction. You don't need to throw your Bible in the trash this afternoon. It's still trustworthy. I just wanted you to know that there are two different descriptions of how long this took until this this happens. About a week, namely six days. Go by, and Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Now, just briefly, let's just make sure we understand. James and John are James and John, the sons of Zebedee. You'll remember their mom, who is a very assertive mom. Mom, some of you, maybe we should preach on her next week. 
That would be a better idea. Um, Their mom comes to Jesus and she says, now, I just wanted to make sure I could get my boys on your right hand and on your left hand in the kingdom. That going to be okay? Going to work that out? And uh, I I wish at times we knew what Jesus was like as a personality. Like, what was his expression like? How did he, did he smile at her? Was he, was he calm or did he just turn around and look at her like, are you kidding me? These are the brothers. And obviously at this point, John is, at least in Matthew's account, he's, he's somehow lesser than James because James is the prominent one. John is the brother of James, maybe older. Uh, we don't know what the distinction is here. Peter, we know. James and John, we know as well. James is a different James than the one who wrote the letter of James. That's the half-brother of Jesus who came to know Christ after the fact of Christ's ministry. This is James and John, the brother. This is the same John who gave us the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. Okay? These three guys are the inner circle with Jesus. Of the twelve, these three get special privilege, special attention from Christ, and he works specifically with them. The Gospel is clear. The Gospel record is clear that these three held a special place. Matthew chapter 26 We'll find this happening again. He'll take the three of them away by themselves. This time it'll be the Garden of Gethsemane. He'll be taking them into the garden. They're going to be sleeping. He's going to be praying. You remember the account. Okay. Mark chapter 5. He goes in to heal and takes only these three. Leaves everybody and closes everybody out and says, I want these three to come with me. These were the inner circle. They had a special place in the heart of Jesus. And he takes them now to a high mountain by themselves doesn't give us any inclination that they knew what was about to happen. The high mountain is a guess. Uh, If you go to the Holy Land, you'll probably be taken to Mount Tabor, which is traditionally known as the high mountain. Unfortunately, it's only 1,900 feet high. That's not a mountain. That's a hill. That's not a mountain. And on top of that mountain, quote unquote, at the time, there was a fortress. So if Jesus wanted to go away and be alone with these three guys for the transfiguration, going to a Army fort that was inhabited was not the probably the best idea. And so that kind of rules out Mount Tabor as the high mountain that they went to. Potentially Mount Hermon, which is 9,000 feet plus. Uh, that's very cold at the summit. They spent the night there. Uh, Luke and Mark inform our understanding. That seems hard to grasp. Mount Miron, I believe, is the best guess. Comes in about 4,000 feet and uh, situated right there on the way from Caesarea Philippi. Beside the point, they went to a high mountain and they went by themselves. And it's all leading us to verse number two. Verse number two, in Matthew's understated way, he says, and he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And behold, verse three, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. End of story. We don't get anything else about how this happened, what it, what was there a process? We only know that Jesus took these three men up on the mountain and something, something radical took place on top of that mountain. Jesus took on his pre-incarnate form. He became as if he had never come or his post-ascension form. Either way, he took on his glory and allowed them to see him in all of his glory. This is the transfiguration. Jesus is in his humility. Philippians chapter 2 teaches us that he emptied himself. He emptied himself. It's often known in theological lingo as the kenosis. He empties himself of his 
prerogative, his divine rights to his attributes, and he takes on the form of a servant, which is a man, and obeys even to the point of death. So lowly Jesus, born in a manger, now allows Peter, James, and John to see him as heaven has always known him. Here is the Son in all of his glory being presented to these three men for them to gaze upon. Matthew describes this, no doubt, from Peter, James, and John explaining it after the resurrection, which we'll find out in just a few minutes was the first time they were to talk about this. Describes it with his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Now, this is an interesting description. The face and the sun part we can get. The blinding light of, of the glory of God is not unfamiliar to us in our, in our Bibles. The whiteness is beyond what any bleach could accomplish. This is the kind of blinding whiteness that when your friend wears a very white shirt to our services, walks out on the patio with you, and the sun is full blast on that white, it gives you some glare across your eyes. You start to look down and rub your head. You're trying not to make a scene about it, but you're very uncomfortable with what you're seeing. This is far beyond any description, but this is as well as Matthew gives us. Jesus' clothes were as white as light. Hard to explain, hard to understand. So let's look at it from elsewhere. Turn back to Isaiah. Prophet Isaiah records a similar encounter. Isaiah is overwhelmed by what he sees. You remember this in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 in verse 1. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. That is the same concept of his clothes are, are, are like light. It's filling the entire temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And they sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. This is Jesus pre-incarnate that Isaiah is seeing. This is the same glory that is being put on display to the disciples at the mountain. Say, how do we know that this is Jesus in Isaiah chapter 6? Isn't this just the Shekinah glory of God? No, this is Jesus. John chapter 12 tells us that that was in fact Jesus who Isaiah saw prior to his incarnation. In John chapter 12, we find in verse number 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. And of who is he talking about? In verse number 36, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. It's Jesus who Isaiah sees. And the quote in chapter 12 of the book of John confirms that it was, in fact, Jesus who was sitting on the throne with his train filling the temple. We know Isaiah's response, and it will match a similar response from the three disciples. Revelation chapter 1, the very final book written by one who is at the transfiguration, gives us this picture of Jesus. Revelation 1 and verse 12, And I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. 
and the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. This is John in the heavens recording what was also present in the glory of Christ. A face like the sun and clothes as white as light. This is the fulfillment of what was promised in chapter 16 and verse 28. That some who were there would actually see him in his kingdom. This is what Christ will appear to us when he returns. To establish once and for all his reign. This is the transfiguration. Now, Jesus is not there alone. Moses and Elijah come to this as well. Join Jesus there. And Matthew says, and we're talking with him. This is a fascinating development. Moses and Elijah, we have no idea how Peter, James, and John know that it's Moses and Elijah, but they do. And those guys are just standing there talking to Jesus, transfigured into all of his glory. This is a bewildering account. But it drives home this great theme. The glory of Jesus establishes the supremacy of Jesus and informs the confident expectation of his followers. With the incomprehensible phenomenon that's taken place right in front of their face. What do you do when you see this? What do you think? And what do you say? Well, unfortunately, Peter says something. We don't know what they're thinking, but Peter says, and that moves us into verse number four in the second part of our study, the conversation. Verse number four picks up the conversation. Peter is now speaking. Poor Peter. I wrote in my notes, oh no, not you, Peter. Um, here's Peter. And Peter said to Jesus, and I've always, I mean, as, as long as I can remember, before I was even a believer, I thought this verse was funny. Because Peter says, Lord, it's good that we're here. Like, I, it's almost as if he just, uh, Peter doesn't have anything to say, so he says something. Right? And some of you are like that. Some of us are like that. We don't have anything to say, so say something. And he says, Lord, this is a good idea. <laughs> and that's all he can come up with. Mark tells us in Mark chapter 9, Mark tells us that Peter was terrified. He didn't know what he was saying. So there... You can, you can just imagine the shock and the awe of this moment. And they're looking at each other and they're looking at this and they're, is that Moses? You know, I, and Peter just goes, Lord, this is good that we're here. This is good. And I'll build three tents if you want me to. That's what happens. It's comic, but it's also an overwhelming thought of what he was experiencing. I'm, try to comprehend at some level. What Peter must have been feeling and thinking. He's trying to come up with a plan. He's trying to say something that's appropriate. Mark 9, 6 says, For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Unfortunately, Peter had not learned that when you have nothing to say, don't say anything. So he speaks. He says, I'll make three tents. Now, there are, there are pages filled with ink about why he says three tents and what the tents mean and are they connected to the Feast of the Tabernacles? And Peter has an eschatological perspective. So he's, he's looking at this. He's going, oh, this is end times. This is Moses and Elijah and Jesus and his glory. Oh, we need to make tents and set up tabernacles and, 
And this is this is the picture of everything that we worship and celebrate in the Feast of the Tabernacles. And I mean, there are pages spilled. And all of that may have some value, but I think Mark chapter nine, verse six informs us that Peter is simply rattling off something. And he thinks, you know what? We should probably keep this going because this is good. Whatever is happening is good. Let's keep it going. And the way to keep it going is build tents. He doesn't make any plans for the three of them to stay. He doesn't have a tent for Peter, James, and John. He just got a tent for Elijah. He's got a tent for Moses. He's got a tent for Jesus. So let's put up three tents. You guys just stay like this. And that'll be good because it's a good thing that we're here. This is all going very well. Okay? Now, these three tents do symbolize one thing for sure. And we find out what they symbolize by the response of the Father to these words. These three tents do symbolize three equal people on one mountain. And there's a direct connection of those that, that the equality of Peter's statement. Like, oh man, Moses is here. Whoa. Elijah's here. Wow. Jesus is in his glory. We need three tents. Let's keep them all here. This is all, let's keep them all here. Now notice what happens. Before Peter gets the sentence out, maybe there was more to say from the one who had nothing to say. Maybe so, but verse 5 cuts in, and while he was still speaking, the words are coming out of his mouth. Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. There's no mention of anyone else from the Father. The point of what's happening on the mountain is not the glory of Moses and the glory of Elijah. It's the supremacy of Jesus Christ. He's the Son of the living God, shown in all of His glory. There with the One who represents the law. There with the One who represents the prophets. And He is to be heard exclusively. You see this? The Father adds to what He said at Jesus' baptism in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. That one little phrase at the end. Listen to Him. To the exclusion of all others, Jesus should have your ear. This bright cloud that overshadowed them is probably a, a poor choice in translation. Bright cloud overshadowed. Uh, no, if it's bright, there's not shadowing. It's either a dark cloud that shadows or it's a bright cloud that does something else. So the NIV translated this enveloped. That's probably a really good translation. This bright cloud, the Shekinah glory of God is all around them so that they're covered in this cloud. And from that cloud comes this voice of the Father. D.A. Carson says of this comment from the Father, from heaven. Even Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, assume supporting roles where he is concerned, that is Jesus. You see, what happens in verse number four is Peter goes, this is beyond belief. I can't even understand what I'm seeing. Let's set up three tents because these are the three biggest figures in my biblical understanding. And the father says, no, there's one, one person to be noticed here. Not some resurrected form of Moses. Not some resurrected form of Elijah. Jesus. And you listen to Him. 
And so the point of this transfiguration is found in this conversation. This conversation is the pinnacle of this text. This paragraph seems to ramp up to this point and it seems to taper off from this point. This is the hot spot of this paragraph where the father declares that Jesus is exclusively to be noticed as his son and as his son who pleases him and as his son who should be heard. This is a fascinating account from Matthew. Verse number six seems to follow. Now, Peter, James and John are responding as they should. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Now, this is not uncommon in Daniel chapter seven or Daniel chapter 10, verses seven through nine. Daniel receives the same vision. Of the glory of Christ. And he says he falls on his face like a dead man. In other words. Falling straight to his face. There's no time to waste. There's no getting down one knee at a time. It is on the face. Because what is happening here. Has has officially put me in my place. Revelation chapter 1. We read of John's account of the vision of Christ. The bright shining face. Listen to what John says following that vision of Christ. When he sees Christ, now he says in verse number 17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forever, and I have the keys of death and Hades. This is an appropriate response. John has done it multiple times. Here we find Peter, James, and John getting a glimpse of the glory of Christ and having the Father Himself confirm through the conversation what they should grasp. Jesus responds to them. He touches them. We don't know why. He physically touches them. And He says, fear not. He confirms with them that they have no fear in the scared of judgment sense of fear. Their awe is appropriate. But their terror that God is about to wipe them out is unfounded. They are with Christ. They are His. They have no cause for fear. The disciples would never look at life. And they would never look at Jesus the same way. After the experience on the mountain. The glory of Jesus establishes the supremacy of Jesus. And informs the confident expectation of his followers. So what happened there on the mountain. Was critical for them to grasp and understand. In light of the information that he was going to die. So Jesus. Jesus comes and. And and these men follow him and he says I'm the Messiah. I'm the son of God. They see his works. He says go tell John the Baptist. Go tell John the Baptist. The lame people are walking. The deaf people can hear. The dumb people can speak. Go tell them. Because my works are confirming what the prophecies about the Messiah said in the Old Testament. And these disciples get it. And then they hear he's going to die. And they have no category for this. There's no category for the Messiah coming, being killed. How could this be? Jesus takes them to the mountain and says, here's what you can expect. I will die. But I will be raised and you will see this 
you will see the kingdom and its power again. And it informs their confident expectation. It informs their hope. You see, the disciples from this point on, these three disciples, could never again say, I don't know what it's going to be like when Christ returns. Because they had been there. They had seen His glory. They had tasted it. When they pick up their eyes, in verse number 8, when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. It's all over. As fast as it had happened, it was over. And it was done. But I assure you that when they saw Jesus only, they saw him differently than they had before. This was his glory. Now, the clarification comes at the end of this paragraph. Verses 9 through 13, Jesus says, don't tell anyone about this until after I've been raised from the dead. We talked about that last week in chapter 16. Jesus is assuring his disciples, that he has no intention of being identified with anything other than his suffering. His suffering, his death, his resurrection is to be the pinnacle of his identity. Therefore, he waits for the spread of the message about him to include and to highlight the cross and the empty tomb. So he tells them again here, I don't want you to go from here and tell others about what happened. So the disciples ask him, why do the scribes, that is the Jewish leaders, say that, the first Eli- that first Elijah must come? Verse number 10. And he answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. In other words, that's a true statement. What the scribes are saying in its raw form is true. Now, why are they asking about Elijah? Well, Mark and Luke both inform us in, a, in what was going on in this conversation. The Jewish understanding of Elijah was that Elijah was the prophet of restoration. Okay, so when Elijah came, he restored. And when Elijah would come again, their expectation was he would restore. And so if Jesus is going to die, how could he ever die as the Messiah? How could the Messiah die in a restored situation? Do you understand that? Elijah is going to fix everything. But in the middle of fixed, they're going to kill their Messiah. Like, how could that possibly happen? So they look to Elijah as the forerunner to the Messiah, but a forerunner in the sense of he establishes what is right. And how could he, in establishing what is right, also then, in the middle of that, experience the Messiah being killed by the very Jews whom he has established as right? You see the picture here? And so the expectation of the scribes is frustrated. And the, the disciples are discussing this. In Mark, it says they were discussing the resurrection from the dead. That's, that's where they were talking about why would he say he's going to be resurrected? How could he die if he's here and Elijah's come and everything's right? How, how could the Messiah die? There's a confusion point with the disciples. And Jesus explains it. He tells them, I tell you that Elijah has already come. And he affirms that Elijah was the one to restore all things. Verse number 11. But notice the indictment of verse number 12. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. In other words, Jesus says, John the Baptist, the second Elijah, has come and was persecuted and suffered at the hands of the religious leaders which should inform your new expectation. The new messianic expectation ought to be that the suffering servant will suffer and die at the hands of the Jewish people. 
They persecuted John the Baptist, all except those who were baptized in the baptism of repentance, who were preparing for the Messiah. That is a small remnant. The majority persecuted him. And therefore, Jesus says the expectation of the one that he set the way for ought to be no different. Okay, so clarification comes walking down the mountain. Transfiguration happens. The conversation in the middle of it takes place and the supremacy of Jesus is forever established. And the clarification coming down the mountain informs their expectation of the future. Jesus will suffer. He will die, but he will be raised and he will return in glory and majesty. The glory of Jesus establishes the supremacy of Jesus and informs the confident expectation of his followers. You see what's coming out of this? So let's let's pause. This is a hard text. I, I, I feel right now with you, I feel the the weight of this text. Like, now, what do we do with this? Like, how do we? OK, we we're back in 17. We've got us into 17. Now, what is 17 supposed to do to us while we're here? Right. So let's ask a couple of questions. And I hope this will at least be food for thought. And the spirit will give direction into the application in your personal life. I can't apply the text for you. Only the Spirit can do that work. But here are a few application questions that you could present to the Spirit and begin that examination process with Him at work in you. Number one, do you worship Jesus, the glory of God, and the Son of Man? In other words, do you, do you rightly perceive who Jesus is? I wrote in my notes, He is holy. He is not your homeboy, right? There are T-shirts worn by many. Some famous pagans wear a T-shirt that say, Jesus is my homeboy with the traditional picture of Jesus. He's not your best bud. He's the king of glory. When we enter into his presence, we will not give him a fist bump or a high five. We won't give him a man hug. He is the King of Heaven and we will fall before Him. We will join with the people singing, Worthy is the Lamb. We will not be flippant. Is this how we see Him? Do we understand Him? Do Do we worship Him appropriately? This is why we take worship so seriously. It's the one who we're worshiping that is so serious gives us great joy and blessing. He has great affections for us. But He is now ascended. And He will return in glory. His incarnation is complete. He has returned to heaven and has been exalted above every other name. And we will bow. Is this how we perceive Jesus? Because if we think of Jesus inappropriately, then we have real cause for concern that we are not actually following Him appropriately or that we know Him appropriately? How do you talk about Him? What do you say and think about Him? He's the King. He's a reigning Lord. He's a suffering servant. Yes. He's the Lamb that was slain. Yes. He's the meek and mild one. Yes. And He will come and destroy all of His enemies. His holiness is unquestioned. The glory of His majesty will take our breath away. This is the Lord and Christ we serve. 
Number two. Do you find yourself when we read texts like this? And this is a bigger question, but when we read a text like this, it comes up. Do you crave an experience like this? Do you do you find yourself, as I often do, thinking that if I had this experience, then I would worship the way I should worship? And I would hope the way I should hope? Like, like if I could just get to the mountain, and if Moses and Elijah showed up, and if Jesus was there in all of his glory, and I got ten minutes of that, and, and I didn't do anything like Peter did, I just kept my mouth shut, I would be forever changed, and I would come back, I'd be on fire for God. I would go boldly to my family. I would spread the good news of Jesus Christ. There would be no fear in me. I mean, if I had an experience like those guys did, that's why they went and died. I mean, that's why they were willing to die for Christ. I mean, they had experiences like this that I've never had. I mean, I've never seen Jesus in person raise someone from the dead. And I certainly have never been on a mountain where he has shown his pre-incarnate and post-ascension glory to me. Do you find yourself just longing for this? That's a trap. It's a trap. It's a trap for us to desperately long for an experience as the marker that will change us forever. You say, where? Whoa, it's a trap? I thought I was going to get patted on the back for, yes, I want that. Well, one of the guys who was there is the one who informs us about this. Go to Second Peter, near Revelation, almost to the end of the Bible. Peter writes to us through the preservation of the Holy Spirit. And he says this in verse number 16. He says, I have the the context of this is that he has every confidence. He's talking to these people in the church and commending them to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that's really the theme of second Peter chapter one. Um, He tells them at the end of of the or the middle of this chapter that he intends to come to see them and to see these qualities being established in them. And he says that he'll make every effort to do that since he knows that they are going to be active in pursuing this. Verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We didn't use clever techniques. Notice what he says in verse 16. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He says, I didn't come and tell you about the coming of Christ and the glory of the coming of Christ and the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all of his brightness and his glory. His majesty on display. I didn't tell you about that with some kind of strategy that I came up with. I told you about it because I was there. I saw it. I know what it looks like. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. I do find it ironic that there's a lot kind of missing in Peter's recounting of that. We heard it as I was still saying something that I shouldn't have been saying. We were there. We're on the mountain. I've seen the glory. That's why I told you about him. And notice what verse 19 says. And we have something more sure. What? 
What could be more sure than being experientially aware of the glory of Christ? We have something more sure. The prophetic word to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. When men spoke from God, but men spoke from God as they were carried along, inspired and moved by the Holy Spirit. What do we glean from Peter's words in 2 Peter 1? It ought not be our craving to have a momentary experience of the glory of Christ so that we then would live in the reality of Christ. Rather, what we find in 2 Peter chapter 1 is that we have a more sure word. Our Bible informs us of completion. There is a better picture of the glory of Christ in your lap than if you were standing on the mountain with Peter, James, and John. They got a glimpse you have a much fuller view which should inform your expectation and which should solidify His supremacy in your life. I trust that the transfiguration is not a mystical, fantastical story, but rather the recounting of a true experience which gave a little window into the glory of Christ for the sake of those three disciples who would forever be altered but stands only as a small taste of what we now experience in the prophetic word, the perfect and completed Holy Spirit delivered scriptures and what we will experience in fullness when we see him. And when we see him, we will be like him. We long for it because of what the scriptures speak about him. Even in Matthew chapter 17, the glory of Jesus The glory of Jesus establishes the supremacy of Jesus and it informs the confident expectation of his followers. Father, thank you for Matthew 17 and the few minutes we've been able to spend studying it together. There is no way that we have done justice to all that is here, all that we could consider for Matthew 17. So I pray that you would take it now, that you would drive it deep in our hearts that you would use it in us to make us look more like our glorious Savior. May His supremacy be on display this week in our lives, in our homes, in our work, in our play, in our leisure, in our work of ministry with one another, in our commitment and sacrifice for the sake of the body. May the supremacy of Christ be evident in every way. And may our expectation, may our hope be grounded in the glory of Jesus. He is not in the tomb. He is at your right hand. And we believe and we see with eyes of faith as your word reveals it to us. And we expect and look expectantly for his return. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. That we might be like you when we see you. Use us for your ends, for your purposes. May we be small, may we decrease, that you might increase. We ask this in your name. Amen.